Greetings, podcast listeners, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of All Things Thor. We're going to kick off Season 2 with Episode 8 of Becoming an Imagineer, where Tom continues to discuss his journey to the center of the Earth at Tokyo Disney Sea, the creation, the concept, through the construction and completion of the attraction itself. It's been a great story so far. We can't wait to get started with Season 2, and we assure you, There are some really, really, really cool episodes ahead, and we'll be marching into other areas of Tom's career, including tiki, design, and other theme park attractions. So sit back, relax, get ready. Season 2, All Things Thor. Good morning. It's a beautiful Saturday morning here in Los Angeles, California. Um... So, I'm going to take things off from where I left off on the last episode. I believe this is episode 8. And um, I'm going to get into some of my uh, more kind of more fun stuff that I, I think that you'll enjoy hearing about. Um, so, about this time in my um, uh, employment, we at Imagineering... When you're working on a ride or attraction, uh, there's a lot of your concepts um, need to be proven, you know, and they'll do what's called mock-ups. So if there's a special effect or if there's a set effect or whatever, at least at at that time, um, they would do these great mock-ups where myself as as a... designer and art director and concept designer at that time could uh, see my ideas being proven physically and they had amazing teams of special effects guys and uh, very bright and talented uh, people also the uh, research and development their department was always coming up with cool ideas. I, as a designer, I've always been sort of a, uh, uh, what should I say, multi-hat kind of a guy. Uh, I've tinkered with electronics and, and um, mechanical things and building things my entire life, uh, thanks to my grandpa, who was a, who was a, a very talented do-it-all kind of, former merchant marine and coast guard kind of guy and uh, who taught me a lot of things. So I don't know how many creative you know, artists and concept designers had those capabilities. I, I was unaware. Some did, some didn't. Some just did one thing or another. They drew or they... Um, you know, they, they did one thing really well and were peripherally, you know, aware of other, of, of other things, but they didn't, uh, uh, they let the, uh, you know, the other people do the things they were less strong on. So on these mock-ups anyway, it was always exciting for me to go in there and see, I'd often draw what I thought, how an effect could be done. I remember drawing many, many pages, uh, on how a lava effect could be 
achieved that looked like it was rolling down a rock wall, you know, through rear projection and translucent materials and uh, and flowing molten lava uh, against opaque, jagged rock formations. And I did all these drawings showing, you know, theoretically how it could be done. And in many cases, they, the R&D, um, research and development, would um, be excited to see these. I mean, sometimes they had other ideas, but the fundamental principles, you know, I always saw them uh, respect what I was proposing. And um, so the mock-ups used to happen um, in these buildings that Disney owned in Burbank. Uh, They were usually very low-key. You'd never know what was going on in there. I mean, they were... This one particular building that we did a lot of the mock-ups for a journey to the center of the earth was a uh, unassuming red brick old warehouse-like building by the railroad tracks. And um, so I remember the first, you know, some of the first times when they would mock up some of the effects and say, "Hey, come on down here, Tommy. Why don't you check this out and see if this is what you had in mind?" and that kind of a thing. And um, there was even the guys, the rock work guys were working in that area. Um, this particular place had a, 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 well, I guess it was originally the parking lot of this old warehouse, but they had test um, effects going on for the lava, uh, concrete, the way they were going to do the formations in, in, uh, on the volcano, the different lava rock sort of types everything from you know these beautiful folds of lava that look like they ha- they were folding down upon each other like you see in Hawaii and stuff and that would harden you know all the way through that through jagged you know highly porous almost swiss cheese like bubbled um rock and they would go on to tell me what you know the science was behind what these represented they, they did their research but they the things they could do with a trowel and other interesting tools they'd come up with was just phenomenal you would I, I just could I was just blown away at these little test I'll call them a swatch but they were like you know seven by seven foot chunks that they would do these different things on and it was just a really amazing a guy named Russ um kind of headed up, you know, a lot of that. Um, and, uh, so, um, I went in, um, with a few other Imagineers. Uh, I remember this one time to see, uh, to kind of see the special effects inside they were doing to, um, prove some of the effects I wanted to do using black light combined with incandescent light. And um, I thought that the combination of the iridescence and, and then at other times um, regular light that was glowing from behind other areas like underneath translucent plexiglass and things that made it look like a hot molten surface. You know, with ultraviolet light, it tends to be relatively cool in um, in temperature of the 
look of the uh, of the paint. How do I explain it? I mean, you can't get you can get a fluorescenty red, but you can't get that hot um, look that's that that you recognize when you heat up a, a a hot instrument, you know, and it gets red to almost white hot and glows and um, the the in, the uh, ultraviolet blacklight couldn't quite match that. So I thought, what if you combine those two things? So we had our phosphorescent light on an iridescent, uh, I mean, not iridescent, but, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the light that was coming from the bioluminescent sources and they were cooler and, you know, pale grays and violets. And then suddenly you had these patches and areas that were actually panels that were being rear projected with fiery red incandescent light and and you combine these things and um at first you know some of the old timers there were like oh you, you know it's probably not a good idea to combine the two you know because they're two different principles and you know you don't want the regular light shining on a surface that's supposed to be receiving ultraviolet light you know and but they bought it and my idea and they went ahead with it and it ended up looking fantastic. Um, the first thing they started to, to work on were the bioluminescent um, glowing mushrooms that were in the giant mushroom forest. And uh, a couple of the, cre I think one of the creatures um, and uh, it, it was, it was it was really cool. Um, they turned off all the lights and we all stood there and looked and we, you know, we critiqued and we talked about the color um, range and how we could uh, raise one thing and uh, more of this, less of that, et cetera. But it allowed you to see what was possible and it proved the concept. And um, it was it was really, really, really fun. So we'd go there, and um, I used to love to get involved um, as an art director, uh, and the and the guy who conceptualized this ride. Uh, it was interesting for me to not just wave my hands around and say, "Yeah, yeah, more of this, more of that." I used to like to get in there and actually um, learn how to do do what they were doing, you know. And um, so I would uh, start to you know, to learn from the blacklight painters, um, how to, how to mix and, um, how to, how to do these various things. Um, and, um, I'd get dirty <laughs> and glowing full of, uh, spattered, uh, spattered light. And, uh, um, it was a lot of fun and it taught me a lot, which I think is really important. If you want to be a responsible or this was my this was my perception at least my opinion if if you wanted to be someone who's leading a creative team I I wanted to be able to do as many things or know intimately how to do as many things as possible so that when I asked somebody to do something or recommended something I wasn't you know talking from uh, from a source that, that didn't understand what it was like to get in there and have to make these things happen. I mean, it's great to make a pretty picture. It's great to have a great, to have a vision, 
But if you can physically get in there and demonstrate to some degree, you don't have to be a master of it, but you need to really understand the principles of it. Um, all of those, all of the team members that do the various things they do respect you a lot more as a, as a leader, as a creative leader. And um, I always felt the same way about those that um, I did things for as an artist. You know, I'm, if they if they were an artist too and could draw, rather than just say, "Ah, oh, no, that that doesn't quite look right." Um, yeah, that's not what I had in my mind. Keep drawing. You know, I that that to me never really sat with me very well. Um, I, I you know I do it, but if the guy could draw or paint or understood it or girl, um, they definitely had my respect. Um, uh, so, so anyway, um, so these mock-ups would go on. Um, and, uh, I really, um, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, at this, at this point, uh, then, um, so I remember going back to my office after one of these mock-ups and cause we were talking about the giant creature, um, the giant lava monster, um, that's going to be at the end of the ride. And I had done a lot of drawings on it, but I hadn't done any three dimensional representation of it. And I wanted to badly. So, uh, and I could sculpt, but since I was five years old, I was sculpting things. Um, Again, my family really encouraged me to sculpt and to um, communicate ideas and, uh, that my grandfather, the guy I told you about, uh, who was a carpenter, could, could actually build. My mom uh, was an artist and she was, you know, very untrained, but but naturally talented and it can do reasonable sculptures and I mean, all my Halloween costumes, everything as a kid she would make. And, and so um, I taught myself through the years how to sculpt very, you know, efficiently. And so I go, I just want, I've got to show everybody what this lava monster is going to look like. And so I was so excited to go home one weekend. I just couldn't get, I, I couldn't put work away. You know, I, I, I had to, to take it home with me as they say. And, um, I went home and became obsessed with sculpting this lava monster. And so I put together an armature and I got about, you know, five pounds of, um, of oil-based plasticina clay. And, uh, I just started to go crazy and, um, looked at all my sketches that I had done and, and spent the entire weekend. I think I, I remember that weekend. It was hard to, it was hard to get me to even sleep that weekend. I just wanted to sculpt this guy and show everybody how spectacular this was going to be. It was something that they had never seen before at a Disney park, you know, something a little edgy, something that looked like it could be in a, in a, in a very effective and, um, impressive, uh, science fiction movie, you know, 
I think I learned a lot of that enthusiasm when I worked for a short time for the special effects uh, wizard, I'll call him, because he really was. His name is Rob Botin. And um, I was doing sketch art, uh, concept art for him. I sat in his studio as a freelance job when I was just barely getting out of school. And, um, you know, um, that, that bug got bitten or bit me, should I say, <laughs> um, to, to, um, to manifest your own, uh, dreams from your imagination. So, um, I just went nuts on this thing and, uh, kept going and going and going and going and, uh, I um I got to a point where I was um I was so excited um I brought it in that following Monday and it was probably about th- already probably about 60% or more evolved and I, and it was coming out super cool and uh I um I kept working on it that week and, um, in my office, you know, um, I kind of made that, I chose to make that a priority, um, to, to, to hammer this thing out and present to the team that this is what, uh, everyone is going to encounter at the climax of this ride, this, this huge, imposing, spectacular creature that lived at the center of the earth and it would almost come into reach of them. And uh, so I worked on it and worked on it and I detailed the living hell out of it. And I also thought very responsibly about how it could be um, uh, engineered um, as an animatronic, as a a large animatronic. And remember, I had just come from a background already before I went to Disney where the first encounters with the entertainment industry was was working for the company Sequoia Creative who was who was uh tasked to make the giant King Kong and uh um a number of the animatronics for Universal Studios at that time you know and so Bob Gurr and his team were engineering those things and uh Dave Swenninger was uh out in the back former Disney uh guy I told you about before who ran the Mapo shop when they were doing Pirates of the Caribbean and all of the, all of the first animatronics and, and at Disneyland. Um, and so I had a, you know, I, I had, um, through osmosis picked up a lot of information and understanding of, of, um, the fundamentals of what you had to think about, about moving these big giant pieces of machinery and so I put all that knowledge into this um, creature. It was, and you'll find pictures of it online if you go to YouTube and look at Journey to the Center of the Earth, Tokyo Disney Sea. There's a number of people now who have ride throughs, you know, of the whole thing, including seeing the creature at the end. And um, so, so I finally got to this point in my office where I was like, I need to present this. And so I, th- I think I requested a meeting and um, I wanted everyone to come in. I want the, the major um, 
you know, the, the vice president of, of um, the project, Tokyo Disney Sea, and uh, and some of my closest uh, team members were working with me, set designer and all that kind of stuff. And um, I, <clears throat> I remember positioning it on my desk and turning all the lights down and taking my desk lamps and sticking them, bending them down underneath the sculpture so it represented the lava uh, flows that were lighting it from below. And, and it was this, made this big dramatic shadow on the, on my wall, you know, this big, huge, jagged, ominous creature shadow that was on the wall behind it. And it just looked freaking, um, cool. And, um, brought them in and they all looked at it and they just, and they went nuts. I mean, they, they loved it. They were, they just oohed and odd. And, um, you know, some of them threw in some more ideas. Uh, I remember, you know, um, some of them, you know, saying, oh yeah, and you could even add this ta- detail and, and maybe in the mouth, you could even add, you know, an additional set of teeth, you know, and, Oh, they all had different thoughts, um, and and many of the thoughts um, I totally uh, agreed with, and so I just kept detailing the heck out of this thing, and it was just it was it was an absolutely um, um, a perfect reference for uh, everyone to look at, um, including the engineer um, who was gonna uh, guy named uh, Larry who I had worked with at Sequoia. He was one of Bob Gurr's uh, right-hand men. Um, so he had a lot of experience in, in animating very large, and uh, uh, engineering the very large uh, creatures and, uh, sh- and moving sets. He was totally excited about it. He loved how it was a hard-shelled material with these sort of overlapping shells, hard-shelled um, exoskeleton, you know, that, that, that would slide behind each other and was going to be much better than having a skin, you know, a cup of a creature that had a skin, which is always a, was always a pain in the ass back then because the skins would tear and you had to really be careful about them and replace them a lot. And um, so I was really proud. I, I, you know, and, and they were amazed at the, at the figure and, um, a lot of people kept coming in my office cause they could, my office had a little window. Um, well had window on one side overlooking the atrium that I told you about before where I'd see people entering this big building, Michael Eisner and all those guys that, or anyone that was coming in for meetings or for whatever. Otherwise it was off limits to everybody else. They do that with projects there at Imagineering, especially at that time, if you weren't authorized to be on that project you know you couldn't just wander in and out of every place you wanted to because a lot of this stuff was confidential and they didn't want leaks you know into what was going on and then my other window faced a little hallway um on the same level and so it had a big glass window and i remember people looking in and seeing this big shadow and this creature and so people kept coming in and looking at it and they were extremely excited that this thing was going to be actually 
big someday, you know, maybe 30, 40 feet tall and, and part of this ride. And so, um, well, you know, um, <laughs> you know, as you know, in life, um, um, uh, you get surprised by the, the rest of the world. There's always that sort of um, surprise baseball bat, you know, that sometimes hits you in the back of the head that you never saw coming. And uh, so what was about to happen was the first time this had happened to me so far at Imagineering. And uh, otherwise, you know, I was in this blissful situation and um, proud of what I had accomplished so far. You know, I had just material everywhere. Um, um, uh, telling everybody what this ride was going to be about. And, and, and people were excited, truly, honestly excited about it. And I mean, in most cases, didn't change anything other than in most cases, things had to be edited as far as, I mean, I had so much stuff that the ride would have went on for 45 minutes. So I had to edit down a lot of the scenes and different things like that to get both into budget and to get into the timing of what it was looking like this thing was going to need to be. And so, um, all of a sudden, um, I get this, um, weird feeling. Um, and, um, it, it, it was like, um, how do I explain it? It was, it was almost like if you went to a party that you were invited to and, uh, someone hands you a, a, a cocktail, you know, and you grab it you, and you happen to grab it with your left hand and, um, and you're holding it and you're talking to everybody and all of a sudden you notice everyone gets real quiet. And they, they, they go, you can't figure out what's going on. It's like, well, why are they all looking at me? You know, what did I do? And, um, then someone pulls you aside and says, Hey, psst, psst, can you come in the other room with me for a second? And so you go, yeah, you go in the other room and they, and they, they go, what the hell's wrong with you? What, don't you understand that you never, never hold a drink with your left hand at one of these parties? And you're going, what? What are you talking about? Don't, you know, yeah, I guess you don't realize, you know, the only person allowed to hold a drink in their left hand is either the host of this party or their direct family and close associates. Otherwise... You never hold a drink in your left hand. And you're going, WTF, you know? I mean, I didn't know. I still don't understand why, but uh, I guess so. And then, you know, and they take the drink out of your hand and they take it away. And you're standing there and you don't know whether to go home or just hang, hang your head down and try to mosey through the rest of the night uh, in shame 
And it's it felt exactly like that. Like I'd done something. I couldn't figure out what I did. <clears throat> well, <laughs> turns out um, I had unknowingly um, done a faux pas. Um, and the faux pas was, should I say... Uh, doing more than I, being capable of doing more than I should have displayed. Um, have you ever heard, even though it's not a union, it wasn't a union, it was it, 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 Disney that I know of, Imagineering, but, you know, have you ever heard those stories? Um, this was my, this again, this is my personal opinion. Um, you know, stories about people who, who work for unions where if they're doing too much, you know, on the job or getting too much done or able to do too many things and they, and they just go about their job and they, they want to do a great job and make something as good as they can. And, and then they get pulled aside all of a sudden and by a, you know, they're relatively new and they get pulled aside by, you know, one of the older workers and, and, of the union who says, Hey dude, slow down, you know, your union, you know, you don't, don't, you don't, why were you nailing up the drywall? You're not supposed to do that. That's not your job. And why, why did you, you know, why did you sweep up the floor and, and so-and-so's room? You know, that's, that's not your job. And you're like, well, it just needed to be done. And I'm trying to, you know, and they interrupt you and just say, you know, no, you, you know, you, you do just this so much, do what you were, do this and uh, a, a certain amount of what was expected here and don't do any more. Uh, you know, you're, you're not supposed to, you know, it makes everyone else look bad or it, or it, um, or you're being boastful in, in your capabilities. You know, you're, you're being arrogant that you're able, you know, that you're doing all these things that you're not supposed to be able to be able to do. Um, and, you know, essentially, that's what people, I felt some people were telling me. And some of my closer friends there kind of told me that when I started to share this story with them. Um, the, my closer friends that had been at Imagining for at least five years kind of chuckled and agree, agreed with, or, or not agreed with, but started to tell me in so many words that my suspicions were not totally off. So now I'm going to conclude this episode. And there'll be another one coming up right, right away not going to be as long of a wait because I'm about to record the second half. So these might be released um, very close together. They will be. And you'll find out now what I meant by this and, <clears throat> and what happened to me. <laughs> we'll see you in the next episode.